Welcome to the Outdoor Country Talk Podcast, hosted by Jacob Poole and Jeremy Shaw, where we bring country living and the great outdoors together. And we are back with another episode of Outdoor Country Talk today. I think uh, I think we got a, got another great one lined up. It's uh, it's something we deal with, an organization we deal with, and I think it's going to be a great show. I do. You know, I'm not really sure. He told us his technical title earlier, and I think that we, we may need to do like a survey on the podcast on one of the social media and see if we can't come up with him a better handle, technical title. But uh, we, well, we, we'll leave that up to him and throw that out there in a little while, maybe. That's right. Well, who, who we got today? Mr. Anthony, how are you doing today? Doing well. What about you? Doing good. And I, my bad, it's Anthony Ballard that we have on. And Anthony, if you don't mind, would you would you go ahead and introduce yourself and kind of tell everybody who you are? Sure. My name is Anthony Ballard. I'm the Nuisance Species Program Biologist for the Wildlife and Fisheries, Mississippi Wildlife Fisheries and Parks. Been with the agency since 2015 in the role that I am now, and uh, glad to be on the podcast. Thank y'all for having me. All right, yeah, just, man, glad you glad you could join us today. Nuisance Species Program Biologist. Program Biologist. It is a mouthful. It, I'll give you that. You got to have an oversized business card just to get all that on there, don't you? <laughs> I can't. It's not a regular wallet size. I got to put it in a frame. And it, yeah, it's kind Fold of it. <laughs> yeah. Can, can we put Pest Man on there? You know, I, I had come up with a couple other ones earlier, but I think Pest Man may be the uh, the Pest Doctor. P S T Pest Man. Yeah. Nuisance. Uh, pest. I feel like that may get confused. With other wordage, I'm not sure. Good, tr- good point. Good point. <laughs> well, we'll keep working on it. Good point. Yeah, um, that's what I'm saying. We we'll, may we'll have to have a... what you got for right now. Don't don't leave it up to the outdoor country talk host to uh, to rename <laughs> you because it's no telling where where that make it. Yep. Look, I've been good, good at nicknames my whole life. Uh, we come up, but normally they come to you in the moment. The moment hadn't hit me yet. So. Right. 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 Well, Anthony, well, Anthony give us some background on how. How this transpired for you and kind of, you know, your job role and when it started out or what it's evolved into today? Well, so, uh, like I said, around 2015, um, I was finishing up my master's degree in, uh, over at Louisiana Monroe, over at Funroe Monroe. And, um, the, the agency at that time, uh, Ricky Flint, who a lot of people know is the alligator program biologist, uh, or excuse me, the alligator coordinator. He was over the alligators, um, fur bears, and nuisance species in the state. And kind of at that time, it became more and more apparent that wild hogs, uh, specifically being in that nuisance classification, needed more and more attention and eventually evolved into a need where we needed a person or the agency needed a person to fill that position full time and kind of break away and have that program in it kind of in itself and so um i had just finished up in monroe i'd done a um a wild hog project over there uh surveying some pig damage in the marsh and that kind of thing which by the way i'll use pigs hogs feral swine all kind of interchangeably and so you know officially refer to them as wild hogs but uh that's basically the uh you know they're all essentially the same thing and i'll kind of go into that Anyway, started in 2015, uh, started building the wild hog program from there. It involves anything from, uh, trapping on our, on our, uh, wildlife management areas 
and private land, public education, uh, you name it. If it has to do with wild hogs, it's, it's pretty much falls under my purview. So, 2015. Now, is that, you know, saying that, is, is that when y'all, y'all just finally realized that, or, or there was enough of a problem that it needed to be addressed separately or, or more than it was? Cause I, I know I had problems way before 2015 with hogs here in Mississippi. So, well, with with the creation of jobs, um, you know, moving people from one job to the other, and and you know, attaining what they call pins, which are basically permanent positions uh, within the Department of Wildlife, any state agency like that, it takes a little bit of time. There's moving parts that have to to fall into place, funding that has to be shifted. Um, I got and you. I, I'm not intimately familiar with the the history of it but essentially that was when the uh the opportunity became available to create that position and like i said i had just been coming out of school and so it was a a natural fit for me with the experience that i had to kind of fill that role i got you yeah well they they are definitely a a nuisance pest in this area Uh, if you've got them you know them and if you don't have them you you better get ready they're on their way What what did you coming coming in kind of I guess you could say fresh out of school? How quickly did the field side of of your you know career develop from what you were learning in school and and applying that out there in the field as far as you know what you were kind of trying to control and how you were trying to help with what problem was out there. Well, it was kind of a, a mixture between, you know, learning the agency itself, how our wildlife management area is operated because, um, you know, we don't actually do trapping on private land, but we do private, uh, land visits to provide technical guidance. And so, you know, it was, it was really a mixture of different things, but, um, you know, part of it was learning how the agency functioned, how the, the wildlife management areas functioned, and then applying what I had learned in school to, better the trapping processes on our lands and then also to help, um, you know, private land folks who really it took a while to, to find out that I, that this position existed because it, it had never existed before um, to start doing those private land visits, those technical guidance um, site visits and that kind of thing to, to actually facilitate and, and kind of convey, start to convey some of that information that I had to offer um and, and really start to kind of fill that role and expand what it could be. And now, Anthony, did y'all, uh, and I guess when you start a new position like that, that that's not really known out in, do you get with your, uh, I guess you get with landowners or do you, you, how do you let folks know that you've got, that you're there available for with this resource and with knowledge to be able to, to try to help them manage a problem that they have? Well, a lot of times it's stuff like this. It's, it's podcasts. It's the materials, you know, magazines and, and, uh, Mississippi outdoor shows and, and the media that we have, um, there at the Department of Wildlife and Fisheries that we can get that information out. And then, um, you know, a lot of them were just kind of organic where they, they called into the Department of Wildlife at the front desk and said, Hey, I've got problems with hogs. What, what is there that I can do? And, you know, before I, I had come into that position, you know, we could give them some pointers and some some uh, some pieces of advice and that kind of thing. But now we had the option of actually me coming out to their property, doing a site visit, 
riding around in the mule or four-wheeler or whatever with them and saying, okay, here's what I see, here's how this could be made better, and, and here's how you can better solve your problem with the tools that you have. And I think that's that was one of the, the niches I was able to fill in my position pretty early on was to start to do those site visits and really start helping people and following through and writing plans to uh, to deal with an issue that, you know, a lot of times was brand new to the landowner and they had no idea how to handle it. So it was it was pretty gratifying from the even from, you know, pretty early on in the program. Well, you know, we were talking about this the other day. Growing up here in Amit County, when back in 95, when I was in high school, few people saw hogs every once in a while up and down the river but that was it i mean it wasn't it wasn't an abundant number and actually back then when you were in high school at Tap, you're like man i wish i had a couple of them hogs over here we could shoot them that sounds fun right and 10 15 20 years later now we've got a we've got a whole different ball game a whole different issue because i know on on my farms and, and i'm just raising cows but i mean they can they can damage acre land in no time and take oh, yeah, it out take of production. Long. You actually touch on a pretty important point is, is people, you know, you have basically a few different categories of people as it pertains to hogs. You have people that don't even know they exist, don't know they're in the state and are pretty apathetic about, about the issue to begin with. And then you have another group that, you know, a lot of farmers out in the Delta, for instance, that are intimately familiar with how the problems that they cause, uh, the threats that they pose, what a negative force they are. In, in any system you put them in, and then you have another group that actually enjoys hunting them and, and views them as a recreational resource, and that's a big problem because, you know, they're not classified as game species, they're not managed the same way, and they are a non-native um, nuisance wildlife that you don't manage. You, you try to eradicate. You try to reduce the population, reduce the damage as much as you can. And so, you know, part of the messaging that we really try to hammer home is, you know, to, to the people that view them in a positive light and to the people that have really no opinion whatsoever is, hey, these things are, are really bad. We don't want them here. They're, they don't um, produce any sort of value. Uh, they destroy your habitat. They destroy crops. They spread diseases. And once you start kind of laying all those things out, you know, it starts to click to people to say, you know, hey, the, these these things affect me in some way or another. You know, once you start listing off things and you finally find that thing that makes people care about the issue, that's when you really start winning that battle of you know, public perception. Well, and, you know, you can go way more into this than I can, but the biggest thing we've run into with a hog to me is there is no other predator for a hog. You know, you, you have other nuisances, pests, you know, different things that you try to manage. There's usually some other type of predator that can help you manage right. a population. Other than a human, there is no predator. Fast-moving Chevy, maybe. Oh. Well, yeah, and, and once they get over, you know, right around 20 to 30 pounds, you're right. There's really no, um, there's no natural predator. And, and that's what we see in a lot of the, the very successful non-native invasive species that come in and you know, take the silver carp, for instance, or uh, any number of invasive, like when we think of invasive species, all of those species are successful. 
because of a few things. Number one, they're usually better at outcompeting the native species for resources. Most of the time that's food. And they usually don't have a predator that is in that system to keep that population in check. And so they reproduce faster. They outcompete native species. And that's when you see the negative effects on the native species that are there because they just can't, they just can't make a living, so to speak. Well, you can't compete. Um, with that other animal there, with that other species there. Well, do this, Anthony. Uh, kind of for our listeners, kind of kind of go through, you know, more of of a hog. You know, somebody that that may not really know, you know, the the details in and outs on a on a pot pig. You know, what they like, what they don't like, what helps them, how they grow. <clears throat> you know, if you don't mind, throw us some throw us some info out there. Well, to start off with, uh, I'll, I'll give you a little bit of history. So back when Hernando de Soto and the other explorers from, from Europe were first coming over to the New World, um, you know, they didn't know how they were going to attain food. They had no idea what to expect when they got here. Um, Hernando de Soto gets kind of the, the blame for bringing the first pigs over and, and introducing them to the mainland of, of what we now know as North American continent. Um, but it was pretty common practice in back in the 1500s. Uh, so he first introduced them into what is now Tampa Bay, Florida. Um, but like I said, most of the settlers that are then the explorers that first came over were kind of in the southeastern United States. You know, came over from the Caribbean to the Gulf of Mexico um, or, or came over to the, the eastern seaboard. And so you have to have a, a reliable food source when you're traveling all the way across the Atlantic Ocean, especially if you don't know what kind of options you're going to have on the other side. And so what they would do is bring, they brought hogs because hogs lived a long time. They reproduced very quickly. They had a lot of young. They tasted good and they were pretty hardy species. They were, you know, they, they, they didn't, um, they were pretty tolerant of, of environments and, and were fairly easy to keep alive. And so, uh, you know, that they weren't as large as cows, for instance. So they were a pretty good option to bring over to have a reliable food source. Well, what they would do when they came over is usually they would free range them. So they would just let them go and do their thing. And then they would go out in the woods, harvest one when they needed it, come back and eat it. And life goes on. So the problem with that is as the, as the years went on is you had more and more uh, stockpiling, so to speak, you had more and more of these animals that came over. And just like uh, I use the analogy of, of wolves being domesticated to what we now know as dogs, Essentially, man did the same thing to pigs. So we had the the wild living forms of the the wolf form, so to speak, of the Eurasian wild boar over in Germany and Russia and and uh, kind of the, that Eurasian region. And those pigs were domesticated down to the different breeds that we know of today. But just like dogs, uh, you know, if you'll ever see a, a stray dog, they go back wild pretty easily. Uh, they're able to fend for themselves. They're you know, they're able to live independently of humans if they have to. And the same kind of happens with pigs. They'll, they'll go through what's called a, a feralization where essentially they'll revert back to that wild living form and become wild pigs again. They don't look exactly the same, but essentially they can take care of themselves, reproduce, and, and live there. And so, of course, that wasn't realized whenever it first happened, but that was essentially what started to happen and then in the southeast, being that we had pretty mild winters and it was, uh, you know, a lot of resources there for them to have, 
there were more and more populations that started to be established, and uh, that's where most of the ancestry of the the pigs that we have today can can be traced back to. Well, that's pretty neat. I never thought about it quite that far back. I was uh, I definitely wasn't jumping jumping back on the ship to get them get them here. Uh, well, going along with the history, how did you know in the last twenty twenty five years? the way that they've exploded here in the state of Mississippi or in other states, I guess, too. Uh, what has really brought them on in the last 20 or 30 years? Uh, there's There's been a, a lot of factors. Number one, you know, in any situation, pretty much throughout the United States and throughout most of the world, you have urban sprawl, right? You have forests that, that turn into parking lots. And when enough of that happens, you have less and less habitat for these animals to be in. And all the while, they're expanding their uh, their numbers, their populations. And eventually, the human world and the, the wildlife world are going to start to collide and have conflict. And, um, and, you know, once you get enough of a population and you have that, you know, what's called an exponential curve, essentially, where they're, you have that hockey stick graph that's going almost straight up, because the more pigs you have, the more pigs you'll have. You know, I mean, they're, they're just the, that's the way the reproduction works, uh, especially for an invasive species that is so good at outcompeting um, other animals for food resources and that sort of thing, uh, and lack of predators. So, um, basically, in the last twenty to thirty years, you've just seen those two um, those two factors converge, and um, there have been more and more interactions of people that have actually noticed hogs, had hogs on their property for the first time or what have you. And it's really kind of come into the public light. They've always been there. Um, and then another problem is illegal transportation of hogs. And so like you were saying before, you have kind of that excitement where I may get to go out and kill a hog. The problem with that is that happened all over the, the Southeast, really all over the country where people said, you know, I'd really like to go kill a hog. I've never killed a hog. That'd be a lot of fun. Maybe they went with their buddy or whatever the case was, and they wanted hogs on their property. So they call their buddy, they trap us the hogs, bring them over, and now introduce them to a brand new place where they've never been. And you have those same diseases, those same problems, that same damage that's now been introduced into a brand new part of the state. And it, it just causes, it just amplifies the problem that was already going on. Well, I didn't think about transporting, but, you know, like I was saying earlier, you know, on our property, you know, I, I never even had put transport into that category, but, you know, growing up hunting and fishing, we were always outside, we was always out in the woods, you know, just didn't have them like we have them now. And, and I don't know if, you know, just over time, Numbers have gotten high enough, you, like you said. You know, you've hit that axis, you've hit the up curve on the hockey stick, to where you you're finally, you know, now they they've gone from being an occasional pleasure to an absolute nuisance, uh, a destructive nuisance, right? And not and I, not getting any better anytime soon, unless we you know really really do something about them. Yeah, and I've talked to. Um, to guys on, you know, landowners done site visits and that kind of thing. And, um, mo a, a lot of, I wouldn't say most of the time, but a lot of times 
in talking to them, having conversations, they can tell me exactly who it was that first introduced pigs to the area. They can tell me when it happened, and they can tell me a lot of times how many pigs got released. And here I am on their property that is ravaged by pig damage, you know, to the point where the guy can't even take a tractor across his food plot. And he knows the son of a gun that illegally took them and, <laughs> and dropped them off. And, you know, what are you going to do now? There's but, nothing you can do about it. And let me ask you a question. And, we know it's sure. illegal now. Was it illegal 20 years ago to transport them? Uh, I, I don't I'm really not sure that far back. I'm, I'm not sure when the, the laws actually went into effect, you know, with the wording that they are now. Uh, basically, the only the only way that you can transport live wild hogs legally now is with a permit issued by the Department of Wildlife. It has to be for the purpose of slaughter. So basically you have to be taking it straight to, if it's your house, then then that's fine. But it has to be at a, um, into a containment system that's no larger than 500 square feet and for the purpose of slaughter. So people like to take them and, and feed them out and then kill them later. But basically it is absolutely illegal to release them off of wherever you caught them from. Well, and I'll tell you this. I ran into a deal a couple of years ago, our kids event, where we have like our little wildlife expo we have for kids each year here in Amick County. Right. I, we were going to do a hog thing. We were going to have hogs in a trap. And I called a buddy of mine and said, hey, look, if you catch any pigs in your pen tonight, I need them. Well, I called an uncle of mine who's, who's a game and fish law enforcement officer. And I told him, I said, look, this is what I'm looking at doing. Am I okay? And he said, oh, Lord, you can't transport them things, you know, uh, especially not bring them around 200, 300 kids. Uh, I said, well, they're going to be little ones, you know. And he said, well, no, you cannot move them unless you're going to slaughter them where you're moving them. I said, well, that's fine. I mean, we'll wait till everybody leaves and kill them there. And he said, Jacob, I'm telling you now, just stay away from it. Well, I was able to find a, a farmer that had some domestic pigs. And just instead, I, I think I gave him 20 or 30 bucks a piece for his his pen-raised pink pigs. And, the, you know, we were still able to do the same thing. But I had just about messed up not knowing I was messing up mm-hmm. at a public event. It wasn't going to be a, secretly at my house. It was going right. to be a public event with several <laughs> I think hundred, I actually remember that. <laughs> and it was like, oh, oh, yeah, that would have been uh, – I would have gotten a ticket in – find and whatever publicly yeah uh, and everybody would have known who did it uh i guess what what question i have that other people may have too so if you get caught doing it what is the penalty for it do you know well the um one of the one of the things that i view as a positive about my job is i don't have to write tickets to anybody um and so as far as the 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 fines and and all of that i'm i'm really I wouldn't. I'm not, I wouldn't give you a hard number because it could be different with with the judge's ruling and the courts and you know, the decisions there. But um, suffice to say, it, it's a whole lot cheaper not to do it. It is illegal. <laughs> yeah. It is illegal, and we do not advocate or promote anything illegal on this show. So the uh, now, Anthony, as we're kind of getting into hogs here a little bit deeper, talking about numbers. Tell everybody, because Jeremy and I both kind of heard some science and some numbers before, but it'd be nice to have the biologist viewpoint on it. One female hog or one pair of hogs can generally produce what in a year? How exponentially do these things grow? 
so there's a few things into what makes hogs, uh, a few factors in what makes hogs so uh, reproductively successful. Um, number one is they have a very high parental investment. So that sow, she actually, whenever it's time to to um, to farrow, it's basically to give birth, she'll break off from the sounder and she'll actually build a nest. And it, it looks like a, just a big giant nest with leaves and twigs and so forth on the ground. She'll have her piglets. She'll wait a short time until they can kind of keep up with her, and then she'll go back to the sounder. And basically that entire sounder, including her, is responsible for taking care of those piglets and kind of protecting everybody. And so that goes even further to keep would-be predators from being able to, to pick off little piglets because they have to contend with a sow. Everybody knows that it's a really bad situation, you know, one of the worst uh, unnerving in the woods to be between a sow and her piglets. Well, the reason for that is she's going to be close by and watching after them uh, until they're old enough to go off on their own. And so that's one thing that assures that most of the pigs that she's going to have, most of those piglets out of that litter are going to make it to maturity. Um, as far as the numbers of reproduction itself, uh, the, the average is four to six, but I've personally, you know, killed and, and sampled pigs on our wildlife management areas and found as many as 13 piglets that were, you know, not too far from being born. And so, you know, there is a lot of exception to the rule. And and on average, a healthy sow is going to do that twice a year. So essentially, you're looking at anywhere from eight to ten piglets in a year from one adult sow. And then those piglets that are born, it has to do more with body condition than it does with age. But typically, six to eight months, they're going to be breeding as well. And so you have a really quick turnaround as far as, you know, what wow. until those pigs reach sexual maturity. And then, you know, that sow is, is constantly about every, well, it's, well, an easy way to remember is the rule of three. So what it comes down to is three, three months, three weeks, and three days. I think it's like 114 days, if I remember right, is the gestation period, which as far as large mammals go, there's, there's not many other things that compare. They're the most prolific large mammal in North America by far. All right, I'm so, I'm doing some simple math here. Uh oh, hush, hush, hush your mouth. <laughs> All right, so they got his shoes off. I can't one yeah, sow. Yeah, yeah. If y'all quit talking, I could use my fingers more. One sow, say average is six piglets. She's gonna have them times two, twice a year. All right, say that each one of those litters, say it's half and half, boys and girls, you're gonna have three piglets, and each one of them can have at least one more group or litter before the 12 month a, a, a year's out. Right. So you're looking at 13, 20. Dude, that's not funny. You're, you're talking about one is over 20 producing. Yeah, I'm not doing the exact math because you could, you could play that several different ways, but it's a lot, folks. Well, I mean, (laughs) you say one sow has at least, on average, 12 piglets a year, and three of those could have three more. I mean, you're you're 20 right there all day long. Um, And then by the time they're having those, she's bred again. Yeah, she's bred again, ready to drop again. So in a 16th, yeah. And that's just from one sow. That's right. And so the the commonly quoted figure that I've – 
heard and, and repeated a number of times is basically in, in any given population, you have to kill about 75% of the pigs in that population to maintain a static number from one year to the next, from one calendar year to the next. And that is a tall order. It can be done, but it's a tall order. I was just about to say, I don't even see how that's, that's possible for, for a landowner to manage by themselves. Well, you're saying, okay, I got a hundred acres. I've got an average of 40 pigs on my place. I've got to kill at least 30 a year just to maintain a 40 population. Just for, right. Just for there to be 40 pigs the next year. That's wild. That's right. And, and now, the, it, but the good news is, um, from, from research that they've done as far as, um, Total eradications. So they've had some eradications in small populations um, up in the, the northern states. I think New York is one. And they on some islands, they've actually had eradication programs where they killed every single pig on the island. And basically the way it comes down is you'll, you'll spend about 90% of your time and effort killing the last 5% of the population. It's it's easy to kill. Yeah, I say easy. They've gotten a little spooky by that point. Right. It's it's much easier to get down to that five to ten percent of what you had before, and it's extremely difficult to kill that last remainder uh, of pigs. I think it was one study that came out uh, this past. I think it was this past summer, where they said it was nineteen times more expensive and time consuming to kill the last one percent than it was the first 99 percent that's wild <laughs> which is crazy to think about and that's <laughs> you know and and so if you're if you're looking for total eradication uh, i'm not here to say that it's not possible but it is an extremely uh time consuming and and money eating event wow they're not dumb by well, no means and anthony what what, you know, for all our listeners out there, what is the best way that y'all are finding to manage a population, to to get rid of them? So we do almost exclusively trapping. Uh, the only shooting that we do is we, we do some nighttime operations, but that's mostly for either short-term harassment to keep them out of an area for, a, you know, a number of hours or days uh, and to get genetic and, and disease um Samples, and I'll, I'll kind of go into that later. But the the actual management, you know, the the grunt work, the boots on the ground to keep uh, these populations at bay, is all done by trapping. And you're talking about them being very intelligent, and that's true. They're also very trainable. And so the the key to trapping, you know, a lot of people that are not familiar with pig trapping, and you know, maybe this is a new problem for them, they'll they'll set the pig trap like a mouse trap. They'll just put some corn in it. They'll set the trap, uh, and then you, what they usually do is they'll catch juveniles because the juveniles are the ones, they're just like the year-old you know, bucks in the food plot that walk out in broad daylight at 4 o'clock in the middle of your stand. They don't know any better yet. Um, and so they'll catch the juveniles, and then the older sows, the ones that are actually breeding and, and adding the most to that population, they know better. They know exactly what the trap is. They know not to go in it. There's actually been documented cases of adult sows physically blocking the doorway, not letting their uh, their litter go into the trap because they know what it is. Um, 
But that being said, the trapping is a process. You have to allow the pigs to start trusting the trap. You have to let them have positive experiences at the trap over and over and over and over. And finally, you'll condition those pigs to all trust the trap and to go in. And when you've done that, that's when it's time to actually set it to drop the gates whenever whatever trigger you've used, um, you know, is is set off. And I think that's the mistake that a lot of people make is they'll set them and then they'll catch a few of the younger ones. And essentially all that, all that sow has to do is breed one more time and you're right back where you were. You haven't really done much of anything by catching those juveniles. And so your approach should be to catch the entire sounder. Um, I think I felt like I should explain that. I've said sounder several times. A sounder is a, um, just a social group of pigs. So what usually, the, the way they're usually set up is you'll have a few adults and then you'll have their offspring, their litters. And then whenever that litter gets to be around that sexual maturity mark, right around six to eight months, sometimes they'll break off and form their own sounders. Uh, the males always leave. And then the females, sometimes they'll stay and, and have their own litters. And so you'll have as many as three or four generations of, of pigs or they'll break off and form their own sounder. And that just kind of has to do with uh, the social structure and the habitat and that kind of thing. But uh, when I say a sounder, generally it's, it's adult pigs and, excuse me, adult sows and juveniles, uh, you know, maybe, maybe one generation or two generations of, of juvenile pigs. Usually, uh, you know, when we've been doing this for a little while, so when folks say a sounder, my first thought was that's the, that's the family, that's the unit. Uh, you know, if you, if you see you've got 25 in a wad, that's, that's your sounders 25. If your sounders 15, and it, it can differ between, like you say, de- depending on how many and, uh, but I know a lot of times, you know, like with old traps, you know, I, I finally upgraded and got one of these new digital traps where I can actually drop a gate once I can see that everything's in the trap. You know, but the old traditional traps you'd catch, like you say, you'd catch one or two, three, four, and then you wouldn't catch anything for a while. So you'd educate them and then you'd have to move it or try something a little different, uh, you know, whether it was a box trap or a figure six trap or, a, you know, whatever whatever it was. But with the new with the new traps that are out, you can see, okay, well, I've got 18. I know there's 21 in this group. So you don't, right. you don't leave three or, or five out. You can, you can wait till they all come in and then push that button and go take care of the problem. And usually what I've seen on my place is I won't see a group for a while again. It's not saying they're gone forever, but it's going to be a couple months usually before I see the next pig come back in if I get the whole sounder at once. Right. Well, and because what you've done is, you know, pigs are, are territorial. And so that sounder is going to occupy a certain home range. And what you've done when you did that is you took that sounder off of that, you know, out of that home range, hopefully all of them, and then you created a vacuum. And, you know, the habitat's still there, the resources are still there. So the vacuum is going to get filled. But it takes a little while for, for the other surrounding pigs to figure out that, okay, well, that sounder is no longer here. So we can expand our home range and kind of fill that gap. And that's when you'll start to see pigs again. Um, really the only exception to that is what you'll see sometimes. And I've seen this 
on our on our wildlife management areas a pretty good bit is you'll have a sounder coming in. They're 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 all coming in. Everything looks good. About to drop. You know, let's say if I see them tomorrow night, I'll drop them or whatever. And then all of a sudden you see a boar come in, and then you see him coming in over and over. And a lot of times you'll have um, bait site dominance of that boar, and he's got that sounder completely pushed out. And he won't let him back into that food source. So you'll have to trap him and get rid of him, and then the sounder will come back. You know, we've seen that as well. Okay. But it's uh, it's a it's a it's a neat dynamic. It's almost um, to me, it, it's really no different than than a hunting situation. I mean, because what do you do on your land when you see a big buck? You try to figure him out, right? You try to figure out when he's coming and going. You try to figure out his habits, his patterns, where he's bedding, where he's feeding, and it's really the same type thing with hogs, except the reward at the end is knowing that you've made your habitat that much better by removing that entire sounder off your property. And, and to me, that's, that's even more gratifying than, than killing a big buck. It's, it's the same type feeling because it's that feeling of, all right, I figured you out and I've accomplished my goal of, of, you know, in, in this case, making my property, my habitat better. Well, yeah. And you've, you've also saved other wildlife you know, that's that's the thing I don't know if a lot of people realize, but a hog will decimate a turkey population, deer population. Uh, not only is it eating up the resources, but it also, you know, takes out a lot of the young. So whenever you catch it, you say, okay, all right, my turkey population got a better chance of surviving this year. You know, there's still other predators out there, but Absolutely. at least I've helped take this one, you know, a little bit off the table or, you know, give them a little breather for a little while maybe the poults can get up and you'll have a little better fighting chance at it but now and and even with deer you know i've seen i can i can finish the the managers the landowner sentences a lot of times you know they'll say well we we saw these these few pigs come through one year and then the next year we've we started to see pigs on more and more cameras and then the next year you know we we shot a few and we, we saw more pigs than we did deer or just as many pigs we did deer and and now that's all we can see you can't hardly see a deer anymore because there's so many pigs they're just all over the place and what you're seeing is those pigs they're those those hogs are growing in number and they're out competing those deer for those resources and uh, if they're not directly spreading diseases or um, you know they'll eat fawns as well. So if they're not directly interfering with with uh, reproduction of deer, they're doing it indirectly by you know, figuratively taking food off their plate. You know, they're they're eating all the acorns under that white oak instead of the deer, and so it's a it's a lot more uh, complicated, and, and they they interfere with the wildlife a lot more than people really realize. What 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 different species? You know, talk about turkey, deer, you know, what have you. What have you seen that hogs impact the most as far as, you know, a species of something that, that we enjoy hunting? Uh, it kind of depends on the habitat. It depends on the where you are geographically. I mean, I've seen, you know, they have to deal with, with hogs and sea turtle nest predation on the beaches. have to deal with alligator nest predation in the marsh. Uh, they have to deal with, you know, turkey predation, you know, here on, on – uh, upland woodland sites and that kind of thing um really i mean even down to um 
invertebrates that are, that are normally in the soil to you know, salamanders and, and snakes and other you know, reptiles and amphibians, you know, all of those fit into the puzzle of what an ecosystem is. And when you just almost completely erase one of those things, it's going to have a cascade effect in that system. And so just if they're, you know, just because they're not eating a bunch of turkey eggs, for instance, doesn't mean that they're not impacting the habitat where turkeys live. And, and like I said, they really, I mean, literally from a microbial level all the way up to consuming deer fawns, they affect every single aspect of the ecosystem. Uh, just pick one. They, they, they impact them all because they're a non-native predator, uh, well, predator too. They're a non-native species that either indirectly or directly affects everything in that system they come in contact with. Well, do talking about all this, Anthony, does the the state of Mississippi, talking about this, does the state of Mississippi have any type of programs in place that would help offset the cost on traps or, or eradication of hogs and stuff on their property? There is. Uh, actually, the Mississippi Department of Agriculture and Commerce just announced that they have uh, that they're going to have a trap loaning program. So essentially, as a landowner, you would just fill out an application and be able to have a trap loaned to you for a uh, for a time to trap hogs on your property. So that's going to help a lot. Uh, as far as an individual um, landowner or a, a deer camp, for instance, you know, there a lot of these smart traps. They they bring your level of control to a point where there's really very little time involved. You know, there's there a lot, there's a lot of money on the front end. They're, they're not cheap, but they allow you to spend so much less time and energy and gas going out to check your food, uh, your your um, bait, going out to check your hogs, um, make sure you have all the hogs in the trap. All that's already taken care of. So you can look at it on a camera. Um, I've actually also seen deer camps that would share those type of traps. So let's say that everybody would have um, – a hog trap built minus the gate. And the only thing that they would pass to each other would be a gate and a camera. That way, you know, you're looking at a much smaller investment because you just have the gate and the camera instead of the whole trap. And you can pass that around and share the cost between, you know, several thousand acres worth of deer camps or private landowners or how you want to slice it. So if you did something like that, you could really cut your cost significantly while still having the benefits of having a what we call a smart trap, which is essentially uh, a live feed video stream where you can actually look at those pigs and, and control exactly when the gates drop. And wow. I, I think that's, you know, we're, we're going more and more towards uh, being able to have these traps accessible to people because they have been so successful in the field in, in reducing population and without having to spend a ton of time and effort and money to do it. Well, I know for me, the the easiest way I was able to do mine, instead of having to, like you say, instead of having to buy multiple traps, I have family with property, I have property, different pieces of property not joining together. So what I did is I built pens, and I'll feed up in those pens, and once we start seeing hogs in that area, then I'll just move the gate and the camera to that area or... If my father-in-law calls and says, hey, I got them back over on mine, I'll just pick it up and move it, and we leave those pins in place. Now, probably not yep. ideal because we're not we're not going where the hogs are. We're trying to bring the hogs to that pen, but it 
you know, I mean, it seems to work pretty well for us, and it, we only have to be responsible for one gate and one camera system. Right. Well, that's exactly what I was talking about. And and even if you have, I mean, if you have that distribution on your property pretty well, you know, they don't have to be in every single spot that a pig may be. Like I said, they have a home range. They're going to move around anyway. Well, and see, so the, if the they're biggest moving problem, around. I'm biggest, sorry. biggest problem I run into, I raise cattle. Well, right. I can't have, I, I don't need whole kernel corn or, or whatever we're using to bait a trap where my livestock can get to it. You know, I mean, a cow with a feeder does a, uh, has a field day. Right. So I have to set up on pieces of property that, you know, maybe on the backside of my barbed wire fence, I may have a little 10 acre block. So I put it where I'm easy to get to. And, and then, you know, same thing. We just, we feed it up. And once we get them coming in, we get the numbers right. Then we'll put the gate up and, and try to knock them out from there. And, and we've been really successful with it. I know that's, you know, that's one way of doing it. Uh, but it was able, like I say, three or four families, we all got one gate together and, and we just move, move it back and forth. But right. now I know, and this may not be something that you, you, you want to touch on or, or something that you, uh, several years ago, I think there was a study out and I want to say that the state of Texas was trying to pass some type of, something they had that would actually turn the hog sterile. Mm-hmm. Do you know anything on that? Or is that something that's still actively being looked at? Or So I don't know of any specific studies on, um, on contraceptives, but there have been several um, studies and developments on toxicants. Uh, essentially, the argument there is if you can make a hog sterile by eating something, you can also make it dead by eating something, which at that point, they're also sterile. So um, the, the the toxicant route, has, I think, is a lot more appealing than, than something like a contraceptive. That being said, you can imagine that there is a lot of research and time and effort that has to go into making sure yeah, whatever the toxicant is is yeah. going to be safe and effective and exclusionary to other species that might be able to access it. Because that's going to be the and biggest so, question is what else do you what else do you take care of or kill? Right. And, you know, the delivery system is obviously a really big one because you have to have something that hogs can access that other animals can't or at least is very difficult to. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of moving parts to it. Um, so... Those, those tests are underway. There's basically two different toxins right now that are being looked at and they both have their, their drawbacks and their, you know, they both have their pros and cons. Uh, but the moral to the story is right now, as it stands anywhere in the United States, if you're putting out poison for pigs, you're breaking the law. And, uh, there isn't, there are not any commercially available toxins to use just out in the landscape right now. There are some being tested and evaluated researched but uh you know it's you can't unpush that button once you get ready to put it out on the market and so uh you know the the universities and and state agencies private organizations are making are trying to make absolute sure that all the the t's are crossed and i's are dotted before something like that comes out to the general public well i know when we first heard about it several years ago uh 
that was one of the first questions I had was, you know, okay, if this works for pigs, that's great. But what else does it, you know, what else is it going to make sterile or what else is it going to kill from right. a salamander to a squirrel to, a, you know, I mean, what anything that, you know, that eats on that, is it on that hog after that point, could it possibly be affected? Uh, <clears throat> you could just see so many issues that were, yeah, I bet that is a nightmare trying to figure that one out. Like I said, it's in the works, but with with government and state agencies and and all the red tape involved in that, you can imagine how how much there is involved in that. Pro- so. Probably won't be tomorrow when they come out with that. Uh. I put good money that it won't be. <laughs> well, look, Anthony, we we're getting kind of short on time here, but uh, man, I I have thoroughly enjoyed you being on, and I, I hope we get to do it again. I know we've talked about you coming back on and and swapping hats and just uh just being a hunter with us and and talking about a few things. But you know, before we get off of here, anybody that has a problem, pest problem, what is the easiest way for them to be able to get up with you or to be able to reach? I guess, I guess reach out to you to to set up a time to to be able to have you come out and look their operation over? Well, uh, you can call to the office. So our main desk at the Wildlife uh, Bureau is 601-432-2199. Um, and you can you can get me at that number. You can also email me. My, my email is on the website, but it's uh, anthony.ballard at wfp.ms.gov. And that will uh, that'll get you in touch with me via email. Uh, we also have with our web comments. We have some people that, that chime in there and say, "Hey, I've got big problems." There are a number of different avenues, but uh, the main thing is um, if you if you want a site visit, I'm more than happy to go out and look at your place and offer some advice that I have, and um, you can get in contact with me any way, um, any of those ways that you need to. I appreciate it. Anthony, thank you, man. That was enjoyable. We appreciate you being on with us. Yes, sir. I appreciate it being on, and uh, thanks for having me. Yep. Everybody, we hope you enjoyed this episode of Outdoor Country Talk. God bless. God bless. Ain't nothing like a southerner. Lord, to make you feel all right. I got the windows down. I got the radio on.